0: This episode is supported by Inside the Breakthrough, a new history of science podcast full of did-you-know stuff, like, do scientists really yell Eureka? More seriously, Inside the Breakthrough mixes historical wisdom with modern insight. It's a mashup between a history show and a science show, but with a sense of humour too. Hosted by Dan Riskin, each episode has a theme, from lightbulb moments when science history is made through to 2021 being the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. In an episode devoted to that story, we hear how Frederick Banting made that world-changing breakthrough on no salary, no budget, and even sold his car to feed the dogs he used in his experiments. Such is the lot of a Nobel Prize-winning scientist. Search out Inside the Breakthrough anywhere you listen to your podcasts, and we'll include a link in our show notes. Thanks very much to Inside the Breakthrough for their support.
1: Hello, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Naked Neuroscience, the podcast exploring the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. I'm Katie Haler, and this month...
2: The human brain has definitely grown in size relative to that of other primate species, but I argue in the book that it's about far more than size, and it's also about a complete restructuring of the brain.
1: We're pondering the mysterious human mind, asking what is it, and are us humans unique in having one? But first, it's of course time for the news, and... If you're dialing into a remote meeting, do you have your camera on or off? Well, the paper that Anglia Ruskin University perceptual psychologist Helen Keyes has looked at this month has been looking into how group decision making stacks up with videos on versus off. Now, I felt rather self-conscious during this interview as I was in a group call with both Helen and other naked neuroscience regular Duncan Astle, They both had their cameras on and only I had mine off. For a lot of species, including humans,
3: coming together as a group to solve problems is useful and we call this collective intelligence. And previous research has shown that synchronising our non-verbal cues plays a key role in our ability to collaborate with each other and in our collective intelligence, so our our ability to solve problems together. What kind of cues are you talking about, Helen? So here we're talking about synchrony in facial muscle activity, so essentially your facial expression, and also what we call prosodic cues, which is essentially how you're using your voice, uh, so your pitch, the, the rise and fall of your voice, the melodic part of your voice really. These are particularly important
1: for cohesion within a group and they aid collaboration. So right then, you went down at the end of your sentence when you said collaboration. Is that the kind of inflection that you're talking about? You're communicating information to me that you've finished your point. That's
3: exactly right. So that prosody contains communication, but also uh, the emphasis we place on words, how we stress words, the pitch and the speed at which we're talking, the quality of our voices, all of that come together to form our prosody. So another key nonverbal cue that predicts our collective intelligence is equality in conversational turn-taking, how willing we are to take turns when we're speaking to each other and to use cues to understand that one person has finished speaking and it's now the next person's turn.
1: I find this so difficult, Helen. I find it really hard not to interrupt people. Partly it's an internet lag, which isn't helpful. But if I'm not in front of somebody, you know, face-to-face, I think I do quite often interrupt people and it's difficult.
3: You're not at all alone in that. And we are finding in general, there are some side studies looking at turn taking using video conferencing. And without those natural cues of being with somebody, we are actually a lot worse at knowing when to take turns in a conversation. So
1: what did they do to try and look at this?
3: Studies so far have largely focused on these, these behaviours in a face-to-face environment. But this study wanted to look at how we use these cues, uh, the, the synchronise ourselves to each other uh, over video calls and also over calls that are audio only. They wanted to see would the, would the same cues predict our collective uh, intelligence. They got 99 pairs of people. And they asked them to complete a series of collective intelligence tests, essentially some group problem solving tests where you would have to come together to make decisions or generate ideas together. And half of these pairs did these tests over a video call where they could see each other and hear each other. And the other half of the pairs did it on an audio only call. The research also measured how in sync they were. And they did this by looking at their facial expressions. So they recorded their facial expressions and used software to detect movements and expressions and matched them up with each other. And they also recorded uh, the participants prosody. So they had software looking at people's pitch and loudness and voice quality and even frame to frame differences in their speech. And they matched that up. And finally, they looked at speaking turn inequality. So how good people were at conversational turn taking. And the results showed that, well, the good news is there was no difference in collective intelligence scores depending on whether participants used video and audio or just audio alone. However, video calling and audio calling involved participants using different methods to synchronize with each other. So for video calling, facial synchrony significantly predicted the collective intelligence scores. And this, not surprisingly, wasn't true for the audio-only calls. However, prosodic synchrony, so syncing up how you're using your voice and how you're using language, that significantly predicted collective intelligence overall across both uh, types of media. And this was higher in the audio-only condition. That was a bit surprising. So when you didn't have any video Uh, you did better at linking up and having that prosodic synchrony with each other. And that's quite interesting because when you were just using audio only, you were actually better at the conversational turn-taking. And that led to this better synchrony in your prosody, this, this better communication between people, which in turn led to better collective intelligence scores. So interestingly, when you have your video switched off, when it's audio only, You appear to be more tuned in to those voice cues, to the rules about etiquette, about turn taking in a conversation, more tuned into that. And you have essentially more
1: pro-social behavior in that way compared to when you're using video calling as well. I wonder if it's partly because we're so used to talking on the phone for so many years. A lot of people feel comfortable doing that. I find video calling a bit of a distraction.
3: That's exactly what it is. It's the distraction of the video call. So whether you're looking at the other person or looking at your own face, like I'm doing right now, uh, it's, it's very distracting. And it's interesting that it does lead to less good turn taking. So... Even though overall it wasn't that audio was better for collective intelligence compared to video, we can see that there's, there's those differences. It is better in some ways. It's better in that prosodic synchrony. But then, of course, you lose the, the facial expression synchrony in the audio only. And, of course, something this study didn't look at was the other feature that we tend to use when we're video calling and video conferencing, which is the chat feature on the side. And I think that's a whole other study that could really be used to, to think about Is this helping us to synchronize with each other because we're really getting our thoughts out there uh, in real time? Or is this a further distraction from this pro-social synchronizing that
1: might help us to to collectively solve a problem? I'm being a bit flippant here, you know, giggling about not putting my video on. But so many people use these technologies now professionally. Do you think this study supports the idea that actually it's quite justifiable to have a professional conversation and actually not have your video on? Absolutely. It's
3: quite justifiable. What I would say is a mix of video on and video off probably isn't going to be any benefit because if if some people have their video on, there's still that visual distraction. And so it would possibly work better in terms of tuning into each other's uh, prosody and turn taking if we all had our cameras off. But again, missing out on that great uh, emotional expression synchrony that we might expect with videos on.
1: And of course, lags in internet connection can cause havoc with group communication, be it an audio only or video call, as many of us have probably experienced. Helen Keyes there, and that paper was recently published in the journal Plus One. Now, the paper that Cambridge University cognitive neuroscientist Duncan Astle looked at this month is all about how the brain tracks volatility in the world around it, specifically when applied to the stock market.
0: So they created a stock market game so subjects were recruited and they paid a sort of basic payment for being um, in the in the study and then they were given the opportunity to earn more by making good investments so subjects will perform what they call the asset pricing task in an fmri scanner, so in a, in a brain scanner and the task displays trend lines which show you the recent history for individual stocks and they are shown to you sequentially, and then you can make a decision with each one whether you want to invest, stick with your current investment, or sell your current investment. Periodically, those are updated, um, as, if it's like, as if it's the next day. Um, and so over time, what subjects are doing are making some sort of evaluations to which stocks they want to invest in um, and which stocks they don't want to invest in.
1: But these aren't professional stockbrokers, right? These are just participants in the study.
0: Exactly. They're not professional stockbrokers. They could have invested in the stock market themselves if they wanted to, um, but only as Joe Public. Um they are not professional stockbrokers. And so each time they play they will see um fourteen different stocks, and they're real stocks from the S P five hundred, but taken from the kind of recent history, so a kind of 30-day window um, from a few months ago before the the experiment was conducted. So they're real stocks, kind of historical stocks, uh, but the people themselves are not stockbrokers.
1: So they've put these people in a scanner so that the, the scientists can look at their brains whilst they're making these decisions, right? What exactly were they looking for?
0: So they were interested in whether and which parts of your brain track what's going to happen next. So does the activity in different bits of your brain make accurate predictions about what's going to happen in the future to the stock prices?
1: Oh, okay. So something like if it's likely to go down, you see a little bit firing compared to if it goes up or something like that.
0: Exactly. And you can imagine that actually when you're reading the stock market, when you're seeing the lines appear on the screen, there's actually multiple different signals that you could extract from that visual input that will enable you to make a prediction about what's going to happen next.
1: Is that what they tracked then? Were they searching for different kind of indications of which way you were going to go? Are you going to invest or are you going to pull out? So they could
0: track activity in different parts of the brain that are known to be associated with reward processing like the medial prefrontal cortex, the anterior insula, the nucleus accumbens. These are all areas that we, we now are involved in processing rewards and in particular, they could test or the activity in these areas track dynamic changes that are happening in the stocks. For example, do some areas code for the relative volatility of the stock versus other areas coding for rises in stocks? So you can imagine that all of these bits of information, the the, the volatility, the rising of the stock or the decreasing of the stock could all provide you with information that might guide your behavior in the future. And They were interested in whether different parts of the brain track these different types of signal.
1: What did they find then once they looked at these people making these decisions?
0: Looking at people's behaviour, people's choices didn't predict the next day's stock prices, which is reassuring. Um, But the stock prices themselves did. Just like in a real stock market, when things rose one day, they were more likely to decrease the next and vice versa. So the idea is that this kind of predictability of the stock market is providing the participants with the information that guides their choices.
1: It's just really saying that the stock market is volatile.
0: Exactly. And the the trends that you see in one day do make some predictions about what might happen the next day.
1: So you can get kind of good at playing the stock market.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So some people will get very well-tuned to knowing this stock's been climbing for five days straight now. I think we're pretty close to what's called an inflection point where it's about it'll reach its peak and people will start selling off the stocks and it will start to go back down again.
1: Mm. And could they see that manifest itself in the brain activity then?
0: Yes. So in terms of the brain activity, activity in the nucleus accumbens predicted the next day's stock prices. So nucleus accumbens is part of what's called the basal forebrain. So it's just next to the hypothalamus, a, a, a part really quite low down in the brain and that would predict the next day's stock prices whereas the anterior insula appeared to be particularly good at tracking drops in value following a rise so-called inflections so the, the nucleus accumbens appears to make a kind of quite general prediction about the future whereas the anterior insula that's part of the frontal lobe seems to be really good at tracking the moment at which a stock has kind of reached its peak and it's about to turn into a, a decrease
1: Do you think it would be sensible to apply those situations beyond just the stock market? Because I can imagine in everyday life, you're trying to predict generally the pattern of something, but then if something really important is going to happen, maybe that would be a a slightly different question.
0: Really, we need to step back from the whole stock market scenario, because that's just really a game we've created to create a kind of dynamic environment where people are trying to make predictions about what happens next. In reality, you and I are making predictions about the future all the time, you know, do I cross the road at this point? Uh, Do I buy a house for this amount? And interestingly, the areas that are implicated in this study have been associated with those who make particularly risky choices or who are particularly risk-averse. For example, the nucleus accumbens has previously been associated with positive arousal and risk-seeking choices. And the anterior insula has been associated with general or negative arousal and risk-averse choices. So these areas of the brain, you know, they're not like the stock market bits of your brain. They're the parts of your brain that track important statistics about the environment around you that we think then you use to make good decisions.
1: Oh, I see. Did the particular scientists in this study, though, did they look and see out of the participants who was a bit more cautious and who was a bit more carefree? Because I guess you could probably see that in the variations of the brain activity, right?
0: Yeah, you should be. But my sense is that what you would need is quite a large sample size. So they only have 30 to 40 participants per experiment. And so in order to pull out these individual differences in in, in risk taking, you might need larger numbers. Another really interesting thing to explore would be to compare people of different ages. So there's some evidence in the literature that um, adolescents, for example, are, are more prone to making risky choices especially when it's in collective um, context, so when there are other people around. And so it might be interesting to explore whether there are age-related changes in the relative weighting that people place on these
1: different sources of information
0: about what's going to happen next.
1: Having said that this needs to be taken beyond the context of just the stock market, do you think if you work on the stock market, could tracking what the brain is doing in this way, could it give you any advantage? Or are you just... Delving deeper into what the brain is actually already doing.
0: I think it's good delving deeper into what the brain is already doing. So we know that if you practice tasks every day, then you can really tune performance. So the classic example is London cab drivers. Systems of spatial navigation are enhanced in London cab drivers. You and I, even though we're not cab drivers, still have good spatial navigation skills, you know, using the same systems. But they're so well tuned in those individuals. And I can imagine that if you were to find, recruit some stockbrokers, then you would soon find that they are somehow able to tune into these signals, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, these signals about what's about to happen
1: next. Duncan Astle there, and the study was published in the Journal of Neuroscience. You can find out more about these studies via our website, nakedscientist.com neuroscience. If you click on the interview for this section and scroll down, the references are listed below the interview transcript.
0: Since the pandemic began, we've wondered, do our genes make a difference to who gets COVID? Nathan Pearson is part of the enormous team that have just found out. So when we scan across, we see this really tremendous spike in kind of a very intriguing but also mysterious spot. That's in the long interview on this month's Naked Genetics. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. For the rest of the show, join me as I reflect on the elusive and mysterious subject of the mind with John Parrington from Oxford University, who has recently written a book all about the topic called Mind Shift. Now here on Naked Neuroscience, we've spoken a lot about the brain, but I'm less sure what the word mind actually refers to. And I put this to John.
2: We know on the one hand there's the brain, and then on the other hand there's the mind, the individual mind, the individual consciousness. And it's been trying to pull these two things together that has plagued people over the centuries, really. And and I'm trying to bring these two things together. So on the one hand, yeah, the brain is this physical entity, 1.5 kilograms. It's got the consistency of porridge, apparently. I've never held a brain, but that's what I've heard. On the one hand, we've got this amazing kind of individual consciousness and, and also a social kind of consciousness between human beings that seems to transcend really the idea of it being just this physical object so it's trying to pull these two things together now to some extent over the last few centuries there's been a um, an undermining of this idea that humans are special so for instance Copernicus showed that the earth is just another planet that goes around the Sun Darwin showed that we are connected to all other life forms on the planet by evolution But I think it's also important while acknowledging that we do have this massive amount in common with other species to recognise what makes us very different. I mean, the fact we're talking of the internet is just one of the many technologies that distinguish human beings from other animals. And I want to explain what is the consciousness that, that has created these amazing technologies, what makes us different in that sense.
1: So what do you reckon does make us unique then? What sets humans apart in terms of the mind?
2: Well, I think it all goes back to how we evolved from apes, and and I draw inspiration from the things that Darwin said. But surprisingly, I think that it's not often associated with science. Friedrich Engels, who was Karl Marx's colleague and political activist friend, he was the first person really to recognise that human beings started to diverge from apes when we um, started walking on two legs. Then this freed the hands to allow us to use tools, social cooperation using tools to transform the world became a key part of what it means to be human and this then led to the need to communicate so that then led to language and, and both of these two things transforming the world around us with tools but also language then led to the development of the brain.
1: Other animals have been documented using tools to a certain extent and communicating between you know individuals so What really sets humans apart?
2: That's a very good point. I mean, it's absolutely true that there are other animals that use tools, not just other primates. Crows are quite sophisticated in this sense. Um, I think what's very different about human beings is the way that we use tools as such a systematic part of our lives, and also how we keep on creating new technologies with each new generation. So we can see how in 40,000 years we've gone from scratching our living from the Earth to sending uh, rockets to Mars. And I think that's the big difference between those and other species.
1: So how does this uniqueness relate to the mind? You mentioned consciousness earlier. Is, is this a big part of the argument?
2: Well, what I did in the book was to very much take inspiration from a psychologist, Lev Vygotsky, who worked in Russia in the years after the Russian Revolution, in the 20s and early 30s. But he basically took Engels' argument that tools that allowed us to transform the world around us, but had also led to the development of the human brain, and said, well, imagine that words uh, are also a kind of a tool, but in this case a tool that refashions the human brain from, from the inside. Um, And taking that basic idea, he then develops some very sophisticated ideas about the human mind and what makes it different from other species. So what I've tried to do in Mindshift is to take Vygotsky's basic idea, inspiration about how words transform the human brain, both evolutionary and also, you know, as we grow up as, as, as children and then into adults, and then say, well, how can we use this idea but then connect it to the findings of modern neuroscience and modern psychology?
1: Would you be able to lay out your argument for what the mind shift was?
2: Yes. I mean, on the one hand, the human brain has has definitely grown in size relative to that of other primate species. So there's been a fantastical growth just in the very size of the brain. And that's reflected also in structural changes. But I argue in the book that it's about far more than size. And it's also about a complete restructuring of the brain. And also the interactions between different parts of the brain. So I show, for instance, in thinking about imagination and creativity, there seems to be a new role for a part of the brain called the cerebellum, which was unsuspected only a few years ago, but it seems to be showing how the human brain has really been radically transformed, both structurally and functionally.
1: In reading some of your book, I think what you're saying in your argument is that you've got tools and language or sort of words as being a tool facilitates the idea of conscious awareness in that if you can articulate either internally or externally your thoughts, then you can make a world, even if that's an imaginary one. And then that facilitates a whole bunch of rich aspects of culture.
2: Very much so in the sense that thought is based on language. So we have this thing called inner speech, and, and actually there's different levels of inner speech. So when I try and articulate my thoughts, to some extent I'm drawing on this kind of inner speech. But I think there's a much more fluid speech going on there when we, when we think that's actually quite hard to really explain exactly how that would sound. So that's on the one hand, language is the kind of key part of all this. But I also believe there are fundamental biological differences that also have changed within the human brain. So, so that explains why there's not really been any real success in teaching chimpanzees to talk in the kind of way we mean talking in terms of language, using concepts. None of that's really been shown to be possible with any other species besides ourselves. So, so although we use language and we can, we can teach words to chimps, for instance, the actual conscious human consciousness based on human language is also based on biological differences in the brain, I believe.
1: What evidence do you have to put forward that other animals don't have this sort of inner voice or conscious awareness?
2: Well that's a really good point, obviously. And and the big difficulty is of course that we can't ask, you know, a cat or dog or or whatever other species what they're actually thinking to express they can express themselves through language. I think we really have to see it in terms of the way that we affect the world around us. So I said before about chimps, there's nothing to suggest that the way they interact with the environment has really changed over millions of years, apart from in a very gradual way, as happens with all biological evolution processes. Whereas with human beings, we've seen this dramatic transformation in the way we interact the world. The fact we have electricity now and modern medicines and we're sending rockets to Mars and even beyond. Of course, there's a negative side to this, and I talk about this in the book as well, which is that we are also destroying the environment. This isn't all good. It can be very destructive, but it's definitely a major difference between and other species, our ability to transform the world around us through technologies.
1: Can we come back to some of the, the nitty-gritty brain stuff you mentioned before? Could you give us some examples of how you think that being social, developing language, using tools, changed the brain on a, on a cellular and structural level
2: yes I think that's a really important point actually and and of course one of the problems we face here is that there are I believe there are important differences and we can see signs of these for instance if we look at the expression of certain genes uh, linked to cell signaling in the brain there are some quite fundamental differences there there are apparently important differences between the connections between different parts of the brain and I think this kind of information is just starting to really take shape that was one of the reasons that inspired me to write the book was I could see a sign that the incredible technology we have now whether it's imaging technologies or um, molecular and, and, and cellular analysis are allowing us to identify major differences between the human brain and that of other species
1: could you give us a little bit more about which ones you draw attention to
2: I mean, one thing that struck me was that dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters in the brain. It's the classical neurotransmitter involved in reward, for instance. And I found it interesting that one of the genes that uh, is involved in the production of dopamine was found to be expressed in some areas of the brain that are linked to more what we call higher functions, you know, imagination, creativity. And they didn't seem to be the same expression in, say, a chimp. So that was an indication that there are, even at the most basic level of you know neurotransmitter action, there were potentially some quite important differences. The cerebellum is another important part of the brain I looked at. Up till now, until recently, the cerebellum was thought to be really just involved in repetitive movements. If you learn to play the piano or to ride a bike or to throw a ball into a hoop, that's all been known for some time to be related to the work of the cerebellum which is this little part of the brain that sits at the back of the brain but what we're starting to realize is that things like imagination creativity that were thought to always be part of more a function of the kind of frontal structure of the brain also seem to involve the cerebellum in some quite important ways and there's also evidence that the interaction between the front parts of the brain and the cerebellum are quite different in humans compared to other species so there's been a transformation there in that sense.
1: Can you give me a few more sort of concrete examples?
2: Yeah, I think that's the bit where it becomes difficult to connect all of this together in the sense that, well, first of all, language itself, is not just communication. It's about a radical new way of looking at the world. It allows us to conceptualise about the world. It allows us to see past, present and future. Somehow that that must have transformed our basic you know mental process and and i go through different ways in the book how that's a transformed imagination creativity even our emotions practically any human emotion is affected by this role that language plays in the brain now connecting that to actual brain structure individual neurons is the more complicated bit i, I do go through some very interesting studies that have looked at how individual neurons seem to register uh, memories how we seem to how they seem to be involved in connecting, um, you know, different things in the world together. So there, there are some glimmers of understanding there, but it's very much uh, the kind of the, the first step really of trying to understand how language itself transforms the brain in the ways I'm talking about.
1: Okay, so you gave us an example of dopamine. I think what you're saying is that genetic expression when it comes to neurotransmission, there's evidence that that varies between different species, but also these structural differences that you mentioned.
2: Yes, but I think there's another aspect as well that I didn't mention, which is that I've been very inspired by some of the work of um, Earl Miller, who works uh, at MIT in, in, in the USA, in Boston, the USA. And he's come up with some very interesting ideas recently about the way that brain waves of different frequencies can uh, regulate interactions between different parts of the brain. So, based on this, and then thinking about my thesis that the human brain is quite different in both its structure and function from other species, I postulate that this coordination between different parts of the brain that I see as being quite different in human beings um potentially being regulated by these frequencies different frequency brain waves now that's not to say that brain waves of different frequencies don't regulate what happens in an animal brain i can imagine that if your pet cat you know suddenly sees you or spots a mouse or whatever it there may be this dynamic change going on between different parts of the brain what i'm speculating about in the book is that language may completely transform the way these brain waves regulate brain function. I mean, of course, it's difficult in some ways to prove all of this. It's, in fact, in the book, I towards the end of the book, I, I go through a number of ways we might start to test this as an idea.
1: I see. So it's it's a work in progress. This idea.
2: It is definitely a work in, in progress because I think it would be amazing if a, a single book could explain consciousness, and I certainly wasn't, you know, expecting to achieve that. What I think I hope what I hope I do in the book. Is to raise this is a very provocative idea that there is this radical difference between human brains and those of other species, and I think this has research implications because although as a research scientist myself, I'm completely in the idea that we can learn vast amounts from studying other species, mice, but also more controversially primates. I do think there are if there are these fundamental differences between human brains and those of other species it does say there's a limitation to what we can learn from those studies alone and maybe we have to be more creative about the ways we use opportunities to learn more about how the human brain works and you know there are some non-invasive ways imaging different kinds of imaging techniques are allowing us to probe the human brain in all sorts of ways there are opportunities to even make recordings of a human brain while people are undergoing surgery say for epilepsy treatment. So there are possibilities, but none of this is necessarily easy. I guess one thing I'm saying in my book is that we need to take more seriously the idea that human studies need to complement animal studies if we're truly to understand what makes human consciousness unique.
1: The thing is, the brain is just so incredibly complex, and there's so much that we don't understand about what is contained within our skulls. I mean, do you think there's a possibility that actually other species are equally complex, equally fascinating in the way that their brains work? It's just it could be quite different to humans.
2: Absolutely, in the sense that I don't think we can ever underestimate just how complex the brain is, say, of a primate, for instance, or even a mouse, for that matter, or even a fruit fly. I mean, one of the reasons I'm skeptical about the potential for so-called artificial intelligence to overtake human intelligence, this idea that computers might soon be able to think like a human being, or maybe even surpass our kind of thinking, is that I think we often underestimate the complexity of the molecular and cellular level that we have within our brains, but even though also those of other species. So that's one thing to say, but I do think that the way that language has transformed the brain, both in the way our brains have then evolved through that interaction via language with other human beings, but also the way that we grow up within a human society and that radically transforms our brain, because learning has this incredibly important role to play in human culture, I think far more in a sense than it does in, those of other spe- in other species. All this, I, I believe, has led the human brain to be a different level of complexity compared to those of other spe- brains of other species.
1: John Parrington there, and Mindshift is available now. That's all we've got time for this month. You've heard from John Parrington, as well as Helen Keyes and Duncan Astle. And this episode was a particularly special one for me because it's actually my last It's been fantastic chatting about the brain and the nervous system over the past few years. Thank you to everyone who's been on the show. And thank you so much to all of you for listening to it. And watch this space. I've been Katie Haler from the Naked Scientist team. Thanks so much for listening. And goodbye. (music) Goodbye.